Heavenly Father, we pray for this man who's lost his wife over the weekend, and we pray for this bureau agent who was shot and killed on Monday. And Lord, there are literally hundreds and now thousands of people who, in a shocking wave of circumstances, has has suffered this outrageous attack. And Lord, there are many people who are listening to the sound of my voice, and they're no stranger to pain. They're no stranger to heartache. They're no stranger to loss. Lord, they know what it's like to have a broken heart. And Heavenly Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Lord Jesus would come and bind up the broken heart, knowing that it is only Jesus who can restore the sinner, who can forgive the transgressor, who can set the captive free, and then place them firmly and squarely into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to only be looking at the first four verses. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy, who with those who love him, And with those who keep his commandments. We're going to pause right there. The book of Daniel, obviously, is a book about prophecy. It's a book that unfolds the history of civilizations. And as we've studied the book of Daniel, we have seen those civilizations prophesied. We have the benefit of looking back in the past and saw those civilizations unfold. From the Babylonians, to the Medes and the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. And then fast forward into the last week, if you will, the final week of human history. And the focus of the ninth chapter of Daniel begins with the setting for prayer. And then it will describe the ingredients of prayer. And then it will talk about the contents of prayer and the motive for prayer. And then once it goes through this circumstance of Daniel's prayer, it is going to unfold one of the most detailed prophecies in all of the the Bible, if, if not the most detailed prophecy in the Bible. 
So what we're going to look at is the circumstances and setting that sets the stage for his prayer and the ingredients of his prayer, but we're going to save the content of the prayer and the motive for his prayer for our next Bible study. In chapter 9, we're given a rare glimpse into the private devotional life of Daniel. When we come to chapter 9, obviously the statue has already happened. The king of Babylon is dead. Uh, Belshazzar is gone. Ahasuerus, the first Medo king in the first year, is now reigning. He has already gone through the lion's den. Daniel is at the youngest. He's 85 or 86 years old. He's possibly as old as 90 years old. His hair is gray and his hands are weathered. He has seen so much of life. And what we are going to do is we're not going to follow Daniel into the lion's den. We're going to follow him into the prayer closet. And we're going to get a peek into his devotional life. We're going to follow him into his time of study and prayer. You know, someone once said that you are what you do when no one is looking. That's who you are fundamentally. Not when your husband is looking, when your wife is looking, when your friends are looking. It is when it's just simply you and God and only you and only God that becomes the fundamental description of the characterization of the true spirituality that we experience. And we're not going to just simply look at the principles and procedures of prayer, but it's activities and enterprises. You are who you are when God sees you. And we're going to follow Daniel. And we're going to have a unique perspective as we follow him. You know, it was A.W. Tozer. He wrote an essay entitled, God Tells the Man Who Cares. And Tozer writes, the Bible was written in tears, and to tears it yields its best treasures. God has nothing to say to the frivolous man. It was to Moses, a trembling man, that God spoke on the mount, and that same man later saved the nation when he threw himself before God with the offer to have himself blotted out of God's book for Israel's sake. Daniel's long season of fasting and prayer will bring Gabriel from heaven to tell him the secret of the centuries when the beloved John wept much because no one could be found to open the seven sealed book one of the elders comforted him with the joyous news that the lion of the tribe of Judah prevailed in other words the point that Tozer was making it is the man who is on his knees it is the woman who is on her knees it's the man whose heart is open it is the woman whose heart is open that God is willing to speak to in any study of the principles and procedures of prayer there's a few fundamentals Ian Bounds wrote first place must of necessity be given to faith it is the initial quality in the heart of any man who 
essays to talk to the unseen. He must, out of sheer helplessness, stretch forth hands of faith. He must believe where he can, what he cannot prove. In the ultimate issue, prayer is simply faith, claiming its natural yet marvelous prerogatives, faith taking possession of its illimitable inheritance. True godliness is just as true, steady, and persevering in the realm of faith as it is in the providence of prayer. Moreover, when faith ceases to pray, it ceases to live. Faith does the impossible because it brings God to undertake for us, and nothing is impossible with God. Do you understand what he's saying? Prayer by its very nature becomes an acknowledgement of dependence. The moment that you say, Lord, you can, you're acknowledging the fact that you can't. And that's why it becomes such an important thing to pray. And whenever I talk about prayer, there's almost an immediate sense of conviction. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, because remember, this isn't really about you. I've rarely met a person who was absolutely contented with their prayer life. Are you? I know I'm not. You know, I read the story of a small boy who was kneeling reverently as if in prayer, but the words he was heard saying was quite astonishing because he was going, just hear him whisper, And there was this adult standing by, and he, he hears this boy just over and over again, you know, praying the alphabet. And and when he questioned the young boy, he the, the little boy said that he, he found out that God liked his children to pray, but he didn't know what to pray. So he was telling him the only thing that he had just learned. And I remember thinking, that's me. I don't always know what to say, and I don't always know what to pray, and I typically wind up simply praying those things that I think that I know, or need to know, or I think that God thinks I need to know, or that I think that God thinks that He needs to know. I want my prayer life to transform me to change me, to change my life, but then also to change the world around me. And I'm not talking about some campaign slogan, you know, change you can believe in. I'm talking about a fundamental transformation that results in a change in the way that you think and, that, and act in honor of the Lord Jesus and the reflection of his character. And earlier this week, someone called me on the phone and they left an anonymous call. And I, I get this all the time. And they say all kinds of different things for all kinds of different reasons. But the caller told me in no uncertain terms that she wanted more application in my teaching. She said, you know, it's really interesting what you're telling me about the Bible, but I want more application. What does this mean to me? How is this supposed to change my life? And part of the thing that we're going to be talking about is exactly that prayer. But no matter what I say about prayer, no matter how many principles I outline, and no matter what I say, there's still going to be some of us 
when all is said and done, that we still won't pray. And the truth is this. If we can begin to understand what prayer is supposed to do, and how it's supposed to change our lives. We, if, we, if you're willing to pray the kind of prayer that is motivated by the Word of God and then is measured by the will of God, it will become manifested in your walk with God. And that's part of the little lessons that we're going to glean as we walk into, into Daniel's prayer closet and we get a glimpse at his devotional life. In other words, part of what we're going to do as we follow him into the closet is we're going to accompany him in his Bible study and then in his prayer. If you're content with your prayer life, then it's okay for you to go ahead and turn the tape off. Or you can just sort of think about Thanksgiving tomorrow. But if you can ask and answer this question, Do you want the kind of prayer life that changes everything and and also changes you and it changes the people around you? Then you're going to get a glimpse at at Daniel's frequency in prayer and fervency in prayer. But it begins with the Bible study. We're following him into the closet. Look what it says in verse 1, the prophecy. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, is 539 B.C. Now, for many of you, you're not going to have a clue what that means. But that's the year that Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. This is an event that didn't take Daniel by surprise. Remember, the realm of the Chaldeans is the empire that encompasses what you and I would call the Babylonian Empire. It has now collapsed. A new empire has taken its place, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel, in his Bible study, as we walk into his private devotion, there has been political change. There's a new administration with a new ideology and a new philosophy. But you know what hasn't changed? Who is Daniel? He's a Jew, isn't he? He is a captive. He is part of the children of the captivity, even though he's in his mid-80s and 90 years old. Remember, as a teenager, as a young boy, he had witnessed the invasion of Jerusalem. He watched the city burn. He saw the temple get sacked. He saw the sacrifices cease. He saw the men and women killed. He saw the women who became widows. He saw the children who who became orphans. He is the person who put one step in front of the other as he walked away from Jerusalem, wound up on the shores of the Euphrates, where they hung their harps by the river and they began to cry. It's that day. In verse 2 it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. 
You know what everybody in captivity will typically ask? How long? How long is this slavery going to last? How long is is this bondage going to last? How long is this trial going to last? How long is this difficulty going to last? And so again, in that first year, look what it says. He understood by the books. What books? What books do you suppose he's talking about? It, It would appear that he's talking about the scrolls, what you and I would call the Old Testament. More specifically, is it possible that some of the priests and some of the Jews were able to compile at least some of the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? There's that possibility. But more specifically, somehow Daniel has managed to gather the scrolls together of the book that you and I would call Isaiah and also the book that you and I would call Jeremiah. Now, you'll remember that Jeremiah was a prophet who ministered to the people of Judea and Jerusalem just prior to the Babylonian captivity. For those of you who are familiar with the Bible and you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, this is the prophet who warned the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem over and over again to turn from their sin, to turn to the Lord, to turn from their sin, to turn from the Lord. He was the last prophet to call the people to repent before the judgment of God fell upon the people and the nation. Remember? Did they? No. They didn't. I need to ask you a question. Clearly is Daniel a prophet? He really is. Does he hear from God? Yes, he does. Does he have this uncanny ability to understand and interpret dreams? Is he arguably one of the wisest, if not the wisest person of his generation? Has he had extraordinary adventures in in the Lord? Guess what he does? He reads the Bible. He reads the Word of God, this elderly man is pouring over the scriptures. He's in his closet and he opens the Bible and he begins to pour over the scriptures. And 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 this becomes an important thing because no matter how old you are, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how used you are by God, there really is no substitute for the Word of God in your life. And you'll know, Jeremiah spoke, Jeremiah preserves the Scriptures, Daniel is able to take them with him. As a matter of fact, it was, uh, oh, uh, David Jeremiah, I think, uh, who wrote, no, no, it was Warren Wiersbe who wrote, Daniel was a student of the Old Testament scriptures, particularly those prophecies that related to the destiny of his people. He's going in and he's looking at the scripture, particularly those scriptures that involve his people. He's now nearly 90 years old. He's reading Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord causes him to see that his people would be in Babylon for 70 years. Note that God does not give people visions and dreams when he can teach them through his word. The reason why this becomes important for you, particularly if you're one who longs for visions and dreams, the most 
exciting source of information about God's plans and purposes for your life is found in the Bible. Beware of new revelations that are supposed to come from dreams and visions. Daniel realized that the 70 years of captivity were about to close. Babylon invaded Palestine and began its siege in 606 B.C. And Daniel understood the prophecies in the year 539 to 538 B.C. Now, And this is why the timing that I talked about and this particular thing has now all of a sudden come It's going to make sense to you in just a minute. I want you to understand something. He's left Jerusalem as a a young, young man. He's now an old, old man. And he's reading the book of Jeremiah. And he understands something. That there's two, possibly three years left until the 70 years are over with and the children of Israel who have been held captive for so long are going to be released in order to return to the land to fulfill the plan of God. Isn't that exciting? As he's pouring over the scripture. Now, what a day. Wearsby places Daniel's age at 90. Other scholars say 85 or 86. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How many times do you suppose Daniel took that scroll of Jeremiah and poured over it? I'm going to suggest to you he did it over and over and over again. But in this particular time, a Bible study, he sees something. And he sees it in a fresh way. And as he sees it in a fresh way, He understands something, that God has a plan. And you'll note something else. Daniel calls the scroll of Jeremiah, read it for yourself, the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. Do you understand what that means? Daniel believes that the Bible is God's word. King Jehoiakim, by the way, during the time of Jeremiah... King Jehoiakim had tried to burn the scrolls. He tried to completely remove the the writings of Jeremiah. But the Bible says that the Lord preserved them because they were his very own words. When you have an opportunity, reread Jeremiah chapter 36. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Matthew 24, 35, the grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of our God stands forever. That's what it says in Isaiah 40, verse 8. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 152, long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. You know what that means? Some things were meant to be true forever. Now, the reason why this becomes important to you is because the Bible comes under constant criticism and attack. Usually, there are several kinds of people. Those who take the Bible and they ignore it, deny it, Or try to destroy it. But again, in Jeremiah 36, the 
the, the scrolls of Jeremiah are remarkably, miraculously preserved, and they wind up in Daniel's hands in his prayer closet as he's pouring over the scriptures so that Daniel could have it and read it and benefit from it while he's in his captivity. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up to you is in your own personal devotional life, there's no substitute for the Bible. Open it. Read it. Pour over it. And also, by the way, for the first time in the book of Daniel, God's covenant name is going to be invoked. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 and 3, it uses the covenant name of God, Jehovah God. And by the way, the covenant name of God, Jehovah God, is only used in the book of Daniel in chapter 10. Now, what I'm about to say to you is going to be important for the future, for, for lessons that we're going to have in the weeks ahead. But it's used in verses 2 and 3, in verse 10, in verse 13 and 14, and verse 20. Mark it, because it's going to be important. You know, people always ask me, well, you know, apart from the Bible, how do I know that Jesus was a historical figure? Apart from the Bible, how can I know that this is true or that is true? Apart from the Bible, how can I believe whatever it is that I want to believe? And the reason why I'm even bringing this up to you is because there is this incredible sense that people have that the Bible is the least reliable source of information. And here, I'm here to tell you what the Bible has already said about itself. It is the most reliable source of information. Gino Geraci is not the most reliable source of information. TV preachers aren't the most reliable source of information. Unbelieving historians are not the most reliable source of information. The Bible is the most reliable source of of information, and now think about it. Just like God preserves the scroll of Jeremiah for Je- for Daniel as he walks into his prayer closet, the Bible that you have in, on your lap, or the Bible that's on, on, on the seat next to you, or the Bible that you're looking at or, with your neighbor, or the Bible that you forgot to bring, is still the best source of information. Now, Wiersbe points out three important facts about this prophecy that become very, very helpful as you understand it. You'll remember that God sent the people into captivity because they disobeyed him. The Lord was keeping his promise. The Lord had warned them if they disobeyed, they would be punished. They persisted in disobeying them. They wound up in in exile. In this particular case, it was the Babylonian exile, but there was a benefit from that Babylonian exile. And you know what it was? The Jews, after they left Babylon and returned to Judea and Jerusalem, guess what? The Jews would never have a problem with idolatry ever again. In other words, idolatry was something that was completely purged out of their life. Now, you know what's interesting? When God warns you about stuff in your life and says, please don't do this. I'm warning you, it's going to be bad for you. 
I love you and I care about you. There's a reason why I'm asking you not to do this. And I, I know you've never done it. Thank God you guys are so much more obedient than I am. But if you have ever had God speak to you and say, please don't do this, and you go, well, I'm going to pretty much do what I want to do. And then the Lord says, well, there's going to be consequences. Because I love you. And I can testify that God is faithful. That when He warns you not to do something and you do it anyway, He's faithful to discipline us. The Bible says that He chastises and disciplines every son and daughter. But He doesn't do it because He hates us. He does it because He loves us. And then the captivity brought blessing to the land. You'll remember that one of the reasons why they were taken into Babylon is the Jewish people had abused their privileges by refusing to keep the Sabbath rests for the land. The land belonged to the Lord according to, to the Old Testament, including Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12. Over and over again, the testimony of the Scriptures are, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. God gives the Jews the land, but He also inaugurates a type of a Sabbath year. The Jews failed to honor it, and that added one year of bondage in Babylon for every year that they refused to obey. So, now do the math, those of you who got past 7th grade. How long are they in captivity in Babylon? 70 years. They are to have a Sabbath year rest of allowing the land to lie follow every seven years. For how many years did they disobey God, you mathematicians? I'm going to make it easy for you. What is seven times seven? Add a zero. How many years? 490. 490. 100 years disobedient. 200 years disobedient. 300 years disobedient. 400 years disobedient. 490 years. Do you think God's patient? He's really patient, isn't he? But all of those centuries of disobedience caught up with them. And by the way, when they were in captivity, the land lay fallow. And by the way, God didn't like his people defiling the land with sin and idolatry. And so for... 70 years, the land gets a rest. And number three, when Daniel made the discovery, or simply allowed the plain text of Jeremiah to sink in, the captivity was about to end. If Daniel was taken to Babylon, by the way, in 605 B.C., and if he discovered Jeremiah's prophecy in 539 B.C., that means that he had been in Babylon between 66 and 67 years. The next year, in 538 B.C., it would be the year that King Cyrus will make his decree permitting the Jews to return the land. Captivity is about to come to an end. A new beginning is about to start. But will Daniel go back? Will he be one of the, the people to return? No. 
he's very, very, he's a very senior citizen at this point. But he's excited. And the reason why he's excited is this prophecy motivates him to pray. The captivity is about to come to a close. As a matter of fact, if you if you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. And in verse 8, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah 25, 8, Because you have not heard my words, behold, I, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against the land, against its inhabitants, and against those nations all around. I will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the sound of the millstone and the light of the lamp, and this whole land will be a desolation and an astonishment. In other words, Jeremiah predicted exactly what Daniel saw. What I've already related to you. The destruction of the city and the destruction of the country and they're taken into captivity and when he saw the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the sacrifices ceasing, when he saw the people taken into captivity, he knew something that just like God keeps his word when he promises to punish sin, he also keeps his word when he promises to forgive sin and to reconcile his people and to place them back in the land and to fulfill his promises. The reason why this becomes such an important thing to you is because if you ever find yourself in your prayer closet and it's hard for you to even speak words because you're so ashamed. Because guess what? Your pastor isn't looking. Um, your wife or your husband isn't looking. The people at church aren't looking. It's just you and God in the darkness of the moment that you find yourself in the naked, exposed truth of the circumstances of your mind and your heart. And you're wondering... If God can hear you pray one more time, Lord, I'm so sorry. I promised you that I wouldn't do this, and I've done it, and I, then I, I promised you I wouldn't do it, and then I did it again, and then I promised, and I promised, and I promised. Because, guess what? There's a type of a prayer that results not in the, the transformation of, of, of always going back to this well of forgiveness, but where now you are strengthened and encouraged to walk in submission and obedience to the Lord. And by the way, that wasn't the part of the prophecy that caused Daniel's heart to warm and his stomach to churn and, and, and for, his, for his palms to begin to sweat and for him to, to jump for joy and to begin to pray his heart out. It was the last part of verse 11 in Jeremiah chapter 25 where it says, And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And that's when Daniel started doing the math. Let me see. I left then. I've been here for this amount of time. The captivity is about to end. Everything's about to be different. And it says... 70 years, question. Are these literal years? Are these symbolic years? 
Are these 360 years according to the Jewish calendar years? Are these Babylonian years? Is this from the first deportation or the second deportation or the third deportation? How do I figure this out? I know what you're thinking. How do you figure it out? Well, whether it's from the first deportation or the second deportation or the third deportation, the time is close. And God was going to keep his promise. The captivity was going to come to a close. They were going to return to the land. And I know sometimes when you read in the Bible that Jesus is going to come back. You wonder, is it really true? I've heard it for ages. I've heard it for ages. I've heard that a series of prophetic events were going to occur. And are we getting time? Is it getting close to the time of the end? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? By the way, what happens when you read your Bible? When you begin to read Ezekiel 36 and 37, when you read Matthew 24 and 25, what happens when you begin to read your Bible? Does your heart become gripped with the promises of God and the fact that human history is drawing to a close? Or do you just go, who cares? Because I'm here to tell you something. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with the specificity and the accuracy of the Bible, these mind-blowing prophecies that we lose sight, we, we lose a sense of the most important thing, and that is the fact that the Bible is true and the prophecies are unfolding and the future is taking place and the captivity that people experience in sin and in loneliness and in circumstances. For many people, the captivity is getting ready to draw to a close. Your husband is going to get saved. Your wife is going to get saved. Your children are going to get saved and they're going to obey God. Your neighbors are going to get saved. The captivity is coming to a close. The bondage of sin is going to come to a close. You're praying for them. You're loving them. You're pouring out your heart. You're giving the gospel. You wonder if they're ever going to get saved. And you remember the promises of God that he's just to hear you. He is, when Daniel is in that closet, here's the question that I'm here to tell you, that part of this chapter really means that the moment that Daniel it goes into the closet and he opens up his Bible and he begins to read and he will begin to pray, we can rest assured that God is hearing his prayer and is acting on his own plan and he's going to fulfill his purposes. When Daniel reads God's words, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't go, oh, Jeremiah 25, 11, let's have a prophecy conference. And we're going to invite all of our friends and we're going to talk about the prophetic implications as the time of desolation draws to a close and we're getting ready to Embark back to Judea and Jerusalem. No, you know what? He gets down on his knees and he begins to pray. You know what I'm trying to help you understand? That at first, his prayer is motivated by the Word of God. This is why it's okay for you as you pray. You know, we pray before we open up God's Word. We, 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 when we close God's Word, we pray. But I'm here to tell you something. 
that the Word of God is intended not just simply to stimulate your thinking or to satisfy your curiosity, but it is in part to motivate you to worship God, to praise God, to cry out to God, to confess to God, to be thankful to God. As a matter of fact, David Jeremiah writes, when we read of the Word of God and study it, as we come to grips with what it means, we find within us a prayer being formed that will take the Word of God and then apply it in our very own experience. And that's what happens to Daniel. Is God going to fulfill the prophecy? Jeremiah has written the prophecy. Now, you need to understand something. Jeremiah has written the prophecy. Is God going to fulfill the prophecy? Yes. Is he going to fulfill the prophecy quite apart whether Daniel prays or not? The answer is yes. Is God going to fulfill every single prophecy in the Bible, whether you're faithful or whether I'm faithful? He is going to, he is going to be faithful even if you're not. So why pray? If God's going to draw a bunch of nations from the north and they're going to wind up dead on the hills of Jerusalem, if, if there is going to be a one-world government, if there is going to be a series of catastrophic circumstances as the world unfolds and comes to a blazing end and Jesus appears in glory and returns to the earth, is he going to do it with or without you? The answer is yes. The purpose of prayer isn't to change God's plan, and it isn't to change God's will. It's to change you. And it's to change me. It's so that my heart and my thinking and my life and my passion and my priorities will begin to line up with His plan, His passion, His priority. God has revealed to Daniel that the captivity is coming to a close. And when Daniel understands God's will, and when Daniel understands God's plan, And when Daniel understands the truth, he falls to his knees and he will begin to pray in the will of God that the plan of God will come to pass. By the way, do you believe that the plan of God is perfect? It's not a hard question. Do you believe that the will of God is perfect. If you believe that the plan of God is perfect and the will of God is perfect, then why in the world would you want to change His will or change His plan? But we do, don't we? God, I can't believe this is what you want! And the Lord begins to reveal to you, this is exactly what I want. Our prayer should be deeply informed by the Word of God. Our prayer should be deeply informed by the will of God. And by the way, when your prayers are informed by the Word of God and the will of God, I'm here to tell you something very, very important. Your prayers won't go astray. You won't find yourself off the beaten path. Again, David Jeremiah writes, 
Prayer is not a device for getting our will done through heaven. It's a device for allowing God's will to be done on earth through us. That's why we're told to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Prayer is not getting God to adjust his program to what we want. Prayer is adjusting our lives to the revealed will of God. When we pray, it isn't God who changes. It's us. Now, finally, we get to verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, I want you to look at the elements of Daniel's prayer. There is concentration or focus. There is supplication. There is fasting. There is humility. And there is honesty. And by the way, focus, supplication, fasting, humility, and honesty become some of the key ingredients to life changing prayer where your heart changes, where your circumstance changes. Now prayer is hard work and it requires focus and concentration. And what a beautiful way of saying that. Then I set my face toward the Lord God. Daniel has experienced so much. He doesn't set his face towards the Medes and the Persians. He doesn't set his face towards the party in charge. He doesn't set his face on the victories of the past. He doesn't set his face on the possibilities for the future. He sets his face on the Lord. And then he's specific in his prayers. That's what the word supplication, by the way, means. Supplication means entreaty or pleading. The idea is a servant who makes his requests known. It's the idea of a king, of a, of a servant coming to a king, and he's asking for stuff. Or let's put it in words that we all understand. It's like being a parent and the teenager's coming and he's asking you for stuff. He's pleading and intercessing. Dad, can I have the car keys? Dad, can I have $20? Dad, can I have this? Dad, can I have that? And what's the dad's responsibility? I know. Just say no. See, okay, maybe this isn't the perfect illustration. Daniel is imploring God. He's making his requests known to the king of heaven. But do you understand what he's asking? Daniel is asking God that according to his character... And according to his word, to keep his promise. You said that the captivity is going to come to a close. Lord, keep your promise. It's going to come to a a close. Prepare my heart. It's going to come to a close. What should I say to my family and friends? And Daniel mentions fasting. Fasting means going without. By the way, fasting isn't just simply doing without food. It means starving the flesh in order to feed the spirit. If you just simply skip a meal, it isn't fasting. That's dieting. Skipping a meal is not fasting. It means skipping a meal with the point that the time that you would normally take preparing the food or eating the food, that you're going to take that time to prepare your heart and to 
focus on the Lord and worship the Lord and speak to the Lord. John Whitcomb writes, in the Bible, fasting was never a means to gain God's attention or to impress him. It was a practical means of setting aside time-consuming tasks of meal preparation in order to concentrate on the Lord. And you'll remember Jesus in the, in the wilderness temptations with Satan. He told the Satan, man shall not live by bread alone. You remember the rest. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. So for Daniel, prayer becomes more important than food. And, and sackcloth and ashes, by the way, has certainly fallen out of favor in the body of Christ. Most people, when they gather together for prayer meetings, they don't, you know, um, wear sackcloth, which is sort of like potato cloth, and ashes is, you know, charred embers. But in, that, in those days, it was an act of humility. In other words, you would put on rough clothing and you would put on this charcoal, if you will, it was an expression of grievous trouble or humility. It, it represented a humbling of the soul before God in repentance. And you'll remember when Jonah goes to the Ninevites, they put on sackcloth and ashes because they wanted to truly, truly be able to represent on, on the outward what was happening on the inside, that there was a deep, profound sense of of sorrow over sin, a willingness to turn from sin, a putting to death of, of personal desires, and, and, and a willingness to forego human cravings in order to cry out to God. That's the idea. Leonard Ravenhill wrote, We have many organizers, but few agonizers. We have many singers, but few clingers. We have lots of pastors, but few wrestlers. Many fears, but few tears. Much fashion, but little passion. Many interferers, but far too intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. And failing here, we fail everywhere. The reason why this will become important, particularly as this prayer unfolds, there's an invisible, supernatural struggle, unseen, taking place all around Daniel. And there is an invisible, supernatural struggle taking place unseen all around me and all around you. The pain, the hardship, the trial, the inconsistency, the hypocrisy, the sin. But God wants it to come to an end. He wants us to be men and women of faith, trusting Him, depending on Him believing in Him, not content to walk in sin, but to walk in the Spirit. Is that a description of your prayer life? Are your prayers motivated by the Word of God? And then are your prayers measured by the will of God? You know, when a person says to me, you know, I'm not really familiar with the Bible. And I'm not sure what God's will is. 
Now I go back to the lady who says, why do you keep teaching the Bible? Why do you keep teaching the Bible over and over again, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book? Because this is my greatest, my greatest gift that I can give to you. That if I can teach you the Bible, if I can teach you about the character of God, if I can teach you about the Word of God, if I can teach you about the principles and the promises of God, then guess what? Your prayers will be spent understanding the Word of God and the will of God. And it's going to give you the best opportunity to change to really change at the most fundamental level. You want application? I'll give you application. How about read your Bible this week? Read it and discover what's God's will. Discover God's promise. Discover what God is revealing to you. And then pray it back to Him. Leonard Ravenhill has written that the Cinderella of the church today is the prayer meeting. He said, This handmaid of the Lord is unloved and unwooed because she's not dripping with intellectualism nor glamorous with the skills of philosophy. Neither is she enchanting with the tiara of psychology. She wears the homespun. And my mother used to say, This is flower dresses. When my mother was a little girl, flour and sugar would come in cloth packages. Some of you are old enough to remember. And she would take those cloths and her, her, her mother would sew them into this patchwork dress. It means plain and ordinary. It speaks of sincerity and humility. This is the girl who's not afraid to kneel. He went on to write that as a poverty, as poverty stricken as the church is today in many things, the most impoverished place is this place. It's the place of prayer. And so the next time we meet, we're going to look at the content of Daniel's prayer. And when we look at the content of Daniel's prayer, we're going to look at the elements of worship or praise, confession and thanksgiving, petition or intercession, and then the motive behind the prayer. But remember, it's not just simply a formula. It isn't just simply saying, okay, I'm going to take five minutes to praise God. I'm going to take five minutes to confess my sin. I'm going to take five minutes and and, and offer thanksgiving. I'm going to take five minutes and, and, and intercede on the behalf of my family and friends. God wants your prayers to be fresh and alive and personal. And remember, prayer is just simply talking to God. And again, if you're like the child and you're so excited because you finally know your ABCs, then tell them your ABCs. Say not what you don't know, but what you do know. Speak from your heart. By the way, you won't go wrong if you begin with worship and praise, if you continue with confession, if you proceed with thanksgiving, 
end with petition. No wonder Jesus, when he was asked by his own disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. You remember what he said. But again, it's not a formula to be heard, but rather it's an opportunity to know the Word of God and the will of God and reflect that Word and reflect that will. And the moment that you do that, guess what? You're different. You've changed. There's so much to talk about. But we're going to have to do that in the weeks ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do worship You and glorify You. We praise You that You are the God who occupies eternity, who knows the beginning and the end, that you are the God who fulfills prophecy. That, Lord, you're the the one who reveals himself and has revealed himself. You're the one who sent Jesus to die on the cross for our, our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. Lord, we know why you sent your son. Because we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Lord, We may be able to hide our sin from others, but we know that we can't hide it from you. And so, Lord, we just simply confess what you already know, that there's a dark spot, a wicked spot. And, Lord, we want it expunged. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, you said that if we confess our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you've given us such a marvelous soap. And Lord, we thank you for our family, for this nation. Lord, we thank you for the abundance of provision. Lord, we thank you that even in a wicked world, even in a fallen world, Every morning, the sun comes up. You cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Lord, in your grace, you make an abundant provision for us, not based on how good we are or bad we are. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. And Lord, we pray, and I pray, that as we continue to open up the Word of God, as we begin to understand the character of God, and Lord, as we begin to know your will, that we will cooperate with you in the plan that you have for us and how you want to use us to bring the kingdom of heaven a little bit closer. In Jesus' name.